You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these, fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on the conquest of Mount Everest. In the previous two episodes, we have covered four main things. One, the British expeditions to climb Everest in the 1930s. Two, the early life of New Zealand climber Edmund Hillary. Three, the world of the Sherpas and other Himalayan peoples, and how they came to be intertwined with mountaineering. And four, the early life of Tenzing Norgay, who had been born in Tibet and grew up in the shadow of Everest. We had concluded the last episode with the 1952 Swiss Mount Everest expedition, in which Tenzing and Raymond Lambert had come about 800 feet, or 240 meters, from reaching the summit of the Great Mountain. This had been the first expedition to try and reach Everest Peak from the southern side. So today we are going to start by looking at the preparations for the 1953 British Mount Everest expedition, including an attempt by Eric Shipton, along with Edmund Hillary, to climb another of the region's great peaks, Joe Oyu. We will then get together the team that will make a try on Everest, including Hillary and Tenzing. A few quick notes to start. One, I want to remind you that you can always go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, and see maps of the Everest region, as well as links to resources and photos. The site is always there as a resource for any of our shows. Two, a thank you to the patrons of our show. This includes our trailblazers and navigators, including Dave, Susan, Chris, Eileen, John Paul, Mitchell, Philip, and Roger. To them, and all of those who support the show financially, thank you very much. 
By the way, I get emails and messages all the time from people saying things like, hey, I love the show, and when money is not so tight, I'll give you a donation. And that's great to hear, and I appreciate it. However, I want to stress to everyone that I never want support to be a burden. If you want to help but can't right now, no big deal. Instead, just enjoy the show, share it with others, give us a nice review. What I would ask from everyone is that if you ever get to the point where you can support quality programming such as the Explorers podcast, even if it's 5 or 10 or 20 years from now, well, do so at that time. It doesn't have to be now, and it doesn't have to be my show. Just something you are passionate about and something you believe in. And final note, it's come to my attention that my metric conversions aren't always accurate. My apologies. I will try and do better going forward. And please understand that the conversions aren't always exact, as I often round numbers. So that is it for notes. Let's get on with the show. Now, before jumping straight to the climb of Everest, I want to talk about the actions of the British, including Ed Hillary, in 1952. At the time, the Swiss and Tenzing were making a go for the summit of Everest, but the British team had to operate on the assumption that the Swiss would not reach the summit and that they would get a chance to make the climb the next year. Also, and this is crucial, the British knew that if they did not reach the summit in 1953, it would be years before they would get another chance. And that's because the Nepali government issued only one permit a year to climb Everest, and the 1954 permit had been given to the French, and the 1955 permit to the Swiss. This meant that this was the British team's big opportunity, but if they failed, it would be at least three years before they could return. So, with the Swiss climbing Everest in 1952, the British would get a permit to climb Cho Oyu, one of the world's tallest mountains, and about 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, west of Everest. Cho Oyu was unclimbed. The 1952 British Cho Oyo expedition would be led by Eric Shipton, and it included many of the same members from the 1951 Everest expedition, including Ed Hillary. The objective, other than to climb to the summit of Cho Oyu, was to find and train a pool of climbers who would acclimate well above 24,000 plus feet, or 7,300 meters, and to test new oxygen gear. The expedition would set up base camp below the Nangpa La Trading Pass, a foot trail leading over Nangpa La was the traditional trade and pilgrimage route that connected the Tibetan people and the Sherpas of Kambu. This pass was at more than 19,000 feet, or 5,800 meters. Now, Cho Oyo is in Nepal, but like Everest, on the border with Tibet. Unfortunately, as the British team explored and spied out routes to Cho Oyu's summit, it was determined that the best options meant crossing into Tibet. Shipton was very wary about doing this. He did not want an international incident with China that might even imperil next year's Everest expedition. Thus, the expedition would abandon their goal of climbing Cho Oyu and break up into smaller groups and explore and climb other peaks and routes. And that leads us to the adventures of the Nubla Pass. Nubla had been seen the previous year, and attempts to traverse its icefalls were unsuccessful. Ed Hillary and George Lowe, who were out on their own, decided they wanted to try and tackle the challenge. The two men would conquer the pass and cross over to the north side, and in doing so, it was time for the two Kiwis to be naughty boys. And that's because if they went forward, they would enter Tibet. But the lure of seeing Everest from the north side was too great, and thus the two men, along with three, quote, very nervous, end quote, Sherpas, crossed the Nubla Pass and would go deep into Chinese-controlled territory and come to the north side of Everest. They would spend six days exploring the area and go to the Rongbuk and East Rongbuk glaciers, the old pathways for previous Everest expeditions. Hillary and Lowe had both read and heard so much about these early endeavors. Upon reaching the remains of one of the old camps, Hillary would write, quote, It gave me an eerie feeling to look at it, as though the ghosts of Mallory, 
Irvin, and Smith were flitting amongst the ruins, end quote. They would reach the old Camp 3 just below the North Call before heading back to the south side of the mountain range. Now, the 1952 Cho-Oyu expedition would not really break any ground. No one on the team ever got above 24,000 feet, or 7,300 meters, and thus trying to acclimate the men to the high altitude never happened. And this made the testing of the oxygen system limited. Griffith Pugh, the team's doctor, did note the benefits of oxygen use. There was less heaviness and fatigue in the legs, and breathing was not as strained. On the flip side, he noted that the weight of the oxygen system often offset other benefits. Not exactly any aha moments, as all those things have been suspected for decades. Now, I do want to note that the team had two types of oxygen systems, one called closed circuit and one called open circuit, and I want to explain this. Open circuit systems were those used by George Mallory and George Ingle Finch back in the 1920s. This entailed a climber carrying oxygen in canisters. The oxygen was inhaled via a system of regulators, while climber's exhaled breath was vented into the atmosphere. A closed circuit system recycles a climber's exhaled air, and it is thus lighter. And as you can imagine, lighter is better. By the way, one of the expedition's climbers, Tom Bordelin, along with his father, would develop a closed-circuit system that would be used on the 1953 expedition. So, a few takeaways from the Cho-Oyu expedition. First, Ed Hillary would prove to be the fittest climber on the team. He set an aggressive pace and wasn't afraid to push himself and his fellow climbers. Second, the expedition would climb 11 other peaks west of the Nongpala Pass, but as noted, not Cho-Oyu. And third, the really big thing to come out of the Cho-Oyu expedition was the damage it did to the reputation of Eric Shipton. Shipton had always been a rogue spirit, and he eschewed traditional methods, especially military-style expeditions. To him, climbing wasn't a competition, but a state of mind and an experience. He embraced a passionate and curious and freewheeling approach to climbing, and for this, his men loved him. Now, Shipton was initially named the leader of the 1953 Everest expedition, However, almost immediately the Himalayan committee began to have second thoughts. In the past, Shipton had been criticized for lacking attention to detail and planning, and soon those points were brought up again. For the 1952 expedition, Shipton was criticized for not bringing enough food and provisions, and the expedition's doctor, Griffith Pugh, took note of the poor hygiene in camp, with the men drinking contaminated water, which led to people getting sick. After hearing these kinds of anecdotes, the committee would set out to interview all sorts of people, including members of the Cho-Oyu expedition. They would come to the conclusion that, perhaps, Eric Shipton didn't have the single-minded drive and ambition needed to push the team across the finish line. The Himalayan committee decided that they needed to have someone with a different mindset. They wanted a strong leader with a focused goal. The ramshackle and freewheeling nature of Shipton's expeditions, while fun as heck, were not what they felt was needed, at least not at this time and place. When the subject was broached with Shipton, he would say, quote, My well-known dislike of large expeditions and my abhorrence of a competitive element in mountaineering might well seem out of place in the present situation, end quote. One of the climbers on the upcoming expedition, George Band, said Shipton's statement, quote, sealed his own fate, end quote. The Himalayan committee, after a lot of hemming and hawing, decided that Shipton was not the man for the upcoming venture. And thus, six weeks after offering him the job as the 1953 expedition leader, they fired him. Sadly, the change would be very public, and the Himalayan committee was heavily criticized for how it was all handled. Many people were outraged, feeling that Shipton had been unnecessarily humiliated by the process. Members of the climbing team and the mountaineering community 
voiced their displeasure at the decision, at least in public. However, in private, many of the climbers agreed, or at least understood, the committee's decision, Ed Hillary amongst them. Shipton would bow out as team leader, although he was devastated by the decision. No one was happy with the way that Shipton had been discharged, as so many people, including Hillary and Tenzing, owed him a great debt for the opportunities he had given them. But in the end, many felt it was for the best. In place of Shipton, the Himalayan committee would select Colonel John Hunt, a career army man. Hunt had been born in India in 1910 and was an experienced mountaineer, having climbed in the Alps and the Himalayas. He was fluent in German and French and spoke some Urdu and Bengali. He had even tried to take part in the 1936 expedition to Everest, but had been rejected due to a health concern at the time. He was an excellent climber as well as a decorated and respected soldier, and his selection was a surprise to everyone, including himself, as everyone assumed Eric Shipton would be the leader of the 1953 expedition. While his selection was not without controversy, Hunt would quickly win over the members of the team. He was pragmatic and diplomatic, managing all the various personalities and responsibilities to most everyone's satisfaction. And as one writer said of him, he was, quote, a demon for logistics, end quote. From the start, Hunt decided that to get to the top of Everest, the expedition needed a single-minded focus on the project. It was about many, many people trying to get two men to the top of the mountain, nothing else. There would be no side trips and no distractions. The expedition would need an army of climbers, Sherpas, porters, yaks, and support personnel to methodically move up and down the mountain, shuttling supplies to ever higher camps. People would have roles, sometimes not very sexy roles, but essential to the process. This was the kind of thing Hunt understood, and he knew how to achieve. With that in mind, I also want to take note of Charles Wiley, who would be a climber on the upcoming expedition, as well as the organizing secretary. The 32-year-old Wiley was a decorated British Army officer and had spent three years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Wiley was the guy who made so much of what Hunt envisioned actually happen. Reading about the Everest expedition, it is Wiley who was so critical to implementing the processes and overseeing the execution of this vast enterprise called the 1953 British Mount Everest Expedition, and I would be remiss if I did not note his contributions. So with the ouster of Shipton and the elevation of John Hunt to the top spot, that would, for a brief moment, threaten Ed Hillary's participation. And that's because Hunt very much wanted his entire team to assemble in England and work and plan together as a unit. And that was a potential problem for the New Zealanders, as they were on the opposite side of the world. However, Ed Hillary and George Lowe's participation was championed by the rest of the expedition team, and thus Hunt would keep them on board, despite the two not being able to be in England for the prep phase. So with Hunt's elevation to expedition leader, now is probably a good time to introduce the rest of the team. I've mentioned John Hunt and Charles Wiley, and then there was Hillary and his fellow Kiwi, George Lowe, who was Hillary's best friend. Next, there was 33-year-old Charles Evans, a physician and mountaineer. Evans had been on the Cho Oyu expedition the previous year and was named deputy expedition leader, meaning he was second in command after Hunt. Amongst the climbers, there was Tom Bordelin, who had been on the 1951 and 52 expeditions. A physicist, Bordelin was in charge of the oxygen. Another returning climber was Alfred Gregory. Newcomers included the expedition's youngest climber, 23-year-old George Band, Wilfred Noyce, and Michael Westmacott. Griffith Pugh, who had been the doctor and physiologist on the Cho Oyu expedition, was back, as was Michael Ward, the doctor and climber from the 1951 expedition. A new addition would be Tom Stobart, who would film the entire venture. By the way, I want to note that all of these men were climbers, at least to some degree. 
Now the last team member I want to mention is one of our stars, Tenzing Norgay. As we discussed last time, Tenzing had been offered the role of Sir Dar upon his return from the second Swiss attempt on Everest. Tenzing was hesitant to accept the position. He felt very loyal to the Swiss and preferred to wait and make another attempt with them. And he was wary of becoming just another cog in the wheel of a big British expedition. However, his friends, including Raymond Lambert, urged him to accept the job. They argued that if he didn't accept it and the British did reach the summit, he would never forgive himself for passing on the opportunity. And they were right. Tenzing yearned to climb Everest, and he knew the British would have a good chance at making it happen. Thus, Tenzing would ultimately accept the job, but there was one big string attached. He would not just be the Sirdar, but a full-fledged mountaineer, equal to everyone on the team. The British would accept these terms, gladly. To have the man who had nearly reached the summit the previous year on their team was a great coup, and they knew it. For his role, Tenzing would get 300 rupees a month, ten times what he had been paid 20 years earlier. But now he was the Sirdar, the head of the Sherpas. But more importantly, he was a full-fledged member of the expedition and a climber. So, preparations for the 1953 Everest expedition would be in the works for months. The British would meet with members of the Swiss team that had conducted the two expeditions in 1952 and do a download of information from them, just as the Swiss had done with the British team a year earlier. Of course, the British would have Tenzing on their team, so having a person with specific knowledge of the last two expeditions would be invaluable. And speaking of Tenzing, he would start his duties in Darjeeling, recruiting 20 Sherpas for the expedition. Otherwise, the rest of the team would come to India in late February and early March, and then fly into Kathmandu in Nepal. Here, Tenzing and Hillary would meet for the first time. Hillary would say that Tenzing had a, quote, quiet air of confidence that quickly picked him out from his fellow Sherpas, end quote. And like so many people, he noted Tenzing's smile, saying, quote, it was impossible not to be warmed by his flashing smile and charming manner, end quote. Tenzing would say that the team, including Hunt and Hillary, were polite and gave him a warm welcome. But almost right away, there was an incident that demonstrated the chasm between the British and the Sherpas. As there were no hotels in Kathmandu at the time, the entire expedition was put up at the British Embassy. Tenzing, as a full-fledged member of the team, was given his own bed, but the Sherpas were given an old stable, now a garage, to sleep in for the night. This upset the Sherpas and Tenzing, and they would protest the treatment. As Sirdar, it was Tenzing's job to look out for his men, yet he was also part of the climbing team, and thus he had to straddle both worlds. The Sherpas would ultimately agree to the arrangements, as it was only a single night, but they would demonstrate their annoyance the next day by urinating in front of the garage on the street. Now, normally something like this would have just blown over, except word got out about it, and it would show up in the papers. And this is important because one thing I really haven't mentioned is the worldwide interest in the climb. The truth is, the Everest expedition was a high-profile endeavor. It was not just about some climbing enthusiasts roaming around the Himalayas. This was a focused effort to climb one of the last great, unreached spots in the world. In the end, the world was watching, and watching closely. Ultimately, the British felt the incident reflected poorly on the expedition, as did some comments Tenzing had made about how he would rather have climbed with the Swiss. These comments had been innocent enough. I mean, Tenzing had been through a lot with the Swiss, and he loved the experience of working with them. Expressing his desire to climb with his friends, including Raymond Lambert, as opposed to a bunch of strangers, was just him being honest. But that was the kind of narrative that was picked up by some news outlets, and it caused some consternation for all parties involved. In the end, while it was a distraction, it would all just be side noise, but it demonstrated just how much interest there was in the expedition. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, as we have gotten Tenzing and Hillary together, I want to talk about both of the men as they headed into the expedition. Regarding Hillary, I think things for him were pretty clear-cut. He knew many of the key people within the expedition, and he had good friends and colleagues who admired and supported him. And with regards to his abilities as a mountaineer, well, it was no secret that people saw him as one of the best climbers on the team. He had shown the ability to operate at high altitudes for long periods, and he had a reputation for being aggressive, and Colonel Hunt understood that Hillary, perhaps more than any of the men, would push hard to achieve the goal of climbing Everest. And make no mistake, Hillary wanted to be one of the men to climb to the summit. By the way, it was known that for any summit attempts, Hunt would be sending a two-man team. Hillary hoped that he and his fellow Kiwi, George Lowe, would be able to be a team on a summit try. Now, regarding Tenzing, I think things were a lot more complicated. Unlike Hillary, he knew none of the rest of the team. Even though he had a great reputation, Tenzing would still have to prove himself to everyone. And there's the cultural and language barrier. Tenzing's English was passable, but nothing more. And let's not forget that Tenzing was the Sirdar as well as a climber. He was responsible for moving all the supplies up Everest. Balancing the two jobs was never easy and at times exhausting. And let us be clear, Tenzing commanded the Sherpas. As noted, he had brought 20 high-altitude Sherpas from Darjeeling, and 18 more would be hired in Kumbu. As Sirdar, he could make or break them. Thus, he was respected and, to a degree, feared. Now, despite the responsibilities of his position, the one thing we should never forget is that Tenzing saw himself as a climber. He probably was the least technically proficient of the mountaineers on the team, as he had never been formally trained. But he had exceptional strength, common sense, and passion, and he had proven, repeatedly, to be innovative and even bold. Regarding Tenzing's dual role, Wilfred Noyce, one of his fellow mountaineers, would write, quote, All honor to him. He regarded himself most seriously as a climber, a representative of the Sherpas who should go to the top, and only second as a Sirdar. And a fine climber he was, or he would never have been chosen, end quote. That's a great quote, and it brings up something we have not really touched on, and that's Tenzing's place as a Sherpa within the context of this climb. As we have talked about in past episodes, post-World War II, there was a nationalistic awakening in the region. India was independent, and Nepal was now a democracy. The Himalayan peoples were embracing their culture. Tenzing was not immune to this, and understood how important his place was in the eyes of the region's people. His family was Tibetan. He was from Nepal. He had lived half his life in India, and he was a Sherpa. All of these people saw themselves reflected in him, and so he very much wanted to do them all proud. By the way, I want to note that while Tenzing technically was not a Sherpa by birth, he was essentially incorporated into their world and identified himself as a Sherpa. He had spent much of his youth amongst them, had married two different Sherpa niece, and had lived amongst them for the past 20 years in Darjeeling. Thus, he saw himself as a Sherpa. Now, all of this aside, there are a few things that Tenzing shared with Ed Hillary. 
First, his endurance and strength at high altitudes was legendary. His ability to go longer and higher made people joke that Tenzing had a third lung. And second, Tenzing, just like Hillary, burned to reach the top of Everest. As we noted, this was rare for a Sherpa, for whom climbing was a job, not an obsession. The two men, by the way, were very different in appearance. Hillary was tall and gangly in all limbs, and looked sort of like a young Abraham Lincoln. He often had a scraggly beard and a mess of hair. Tenzing was quite a bit shorter than Hillary, and had jet black hair, and let's not forget, a magnetic smile. He was usually clean and well-dressed, and often wore a wide-brimmed floppy hat. They definitely made an interesting duo. So the expedition would depart Kathmandu on March 10th. There were 150 porters hauling tons of gear. And the next day, 200 more porters would follow. And there would be hundreds of more porters and Sherpas hired once Kumbu was reached. And we can't forget about the dozens, even hundreds of people in Kathmandu and India and elsewhere who were part of the process. This enterprise was enormous. I have read that upwards of a thousand people were involved. It's a credit to Hunt and Wiley and all the other organizers that it went so smoothly. I also want to mention that for this expedition, the team would have the very best. Their snow jackets and pants were the lightest and warmest available. Same with the tents and sleeping bags. And another thing were the boots. Traditional boots were high and made of deerskin and had rubber treads. They were cumbersome, and at extremely cold temperatures, just not that warm. The new boots were a product of a scientific approach to design. The soles were a microcellular resin rubber, and the boots were lightweight and waterproof. In the end, they were light, warm, strong, comfortable, easy to take on and off, and could be fitted with crampons. They were so successful that none of the team members would suffer any frostbite on their feet, a remarkable change from previous expeditions. The boots are a great example of the time and money and thought that went into the expedition. They were advantages past expeditions just did not have, and advantages the new expedition would need if they were to succeed. For the trek to the Kumbu region, everyone in the expedition would walk, the porters hauling the gear, and the climbers and Sherpas gaining strength and endurance as they moved from 5,000 to more than 12,000 feet, or from 1,500 to 3,700 meters. The men would even begin to conduct tests on the oxygen systems, including the new closed-circuit apparatus. By the way, I want to mention that unlike the expeditions of the 1920s we covered in the Mallory series, there was no stigma about using oxygen for a climb. By this time, oxygen was recognized as a necessity for a peak as high as Everest. The expedition would reach the famed Tenboa Monastery, not far from Namchi Bazaar, in the Kumbu region on March 26th and 27th. The monks would offer prayers for the expedition for a safe and successful enterprise. At Namchi Bazaar, more porters would be hired as well as Sherpas. By the way, regarding the Sherpas, Tenzing would be forced to fire one of his top aides, who many of the British felt was a malcontent and who Tenzing felt had gotten lazy. It was a reminder that Tenzing demanded that his people perform. Anything less than the best was unacceptable. Tenzing's deputy would be Da Tenzing, which is kind of confusing because the name is almost exactly the same as our series star. No matter, the man was seven years older than Tenzing, but he was still immensely strong and well-respected. As for the rest of the Sherpas, the oldest would be in his late 40s, while the youngest was 17. Interesting note, the youngest Sherpa's name was Gambu, and he was Tenzing's nephew, and he would become the first man to climb Everest twice. Interesting note done. The expedition's Sherpas would be involved in some minor incidents, such as peeing in front of the British embassy, that had honked off their bosses. But once they headed up to Everest, away from women in Chang, the latter an alcoholic drink brewed from rice or barley and popular in the Himalayas, they would settle into their duties as anticipated. 
I will talk about some of the specific Sherpas later in the series, but they would prove to be a strong group who would be critical to the success of the expedition. In fact, one author said this about the men, quote, If the British were constructing a well-oiled machine, then the Sherpas were the oil, end quote. I love that idea as the Sherpas are so easy to overlook. There are 20 of them, or 18 of them, or whatever. They get lumped together and are recognized as a number. But we can't forget that it would be them hauling the gear and supplies up to the camps at 8,000 plus meters. Without them, none of this happens. So while the admin people were hiring porters and buying provisions and gear, the climbers and Sherpas were working to acclimate to the higher altitudes. They would do this by climbing and exploring the glaciated valleys that surrounded Everest. The idea was to go up and down to heights of around 20,000 feet or 6,100 meters. This would not just help everyone adapt to the altitude, but make people stronger and build endurance. Ultimately, the expedition would get moving and base camp would be set up on April 12, 1953 on the Kumbu Glacier at an altitude of 17,900 feet or 5,455 meters. The plan, as recommended by the Swiss from their own experiences, was to establish a safe route through the Kumbu Icefall and then start hauling gear through it and to the western Coombe. As we noted earlier, Hunt imagined a series of well-supplied camps going up the Kumbu Glacier and onto and across the Great Western Coombe. From there, they would find a way to the South Col and then follow the ridge up to the summit. And thus, the first major challenge of the Everest expedition was before them, and that was finding a route through the Kumbu Icefall. As a reminder, the Kumbu Icefall is about two and a half miles, or four kilometers, long, and half a mile, or one kilometer, wide. The Swiss had found a route through it the previous year, but as the icefall moves, even if only a few feet a day, you can't necessarily use the same route from year to year. Ed Hillary would be assigned to lead a group through the icefall, a challenge that Hillary relished, even if it was dangerous. He was eager to prove to Colonel Hunt that he was the best man to ultimately make a go for the summit of Everest. Thus Hillary, five other climbers, five high-altitude Sherpas, and 39 porters, half of whom were women, trudged their way up the Kumbu Glacier to begin the process of mapping a route through the dreaded icefall. The group would run into immediate problems on the way up the glacier due to fresh snow blanketing the area. The problem wasn't avalanches or crevasses, at least not yet, but the blinding sun. The sun would reflect off the fresh snow and give off intense, blinding light. The climbers and Sherpas had goggles and were fine, but the porters were at risk. Hillary was concerned about them going snowblind, but the porters insisted on continuing. They argued that they were accustomed to the blazing sun, and of course they didn't want to lose their pay. Eager to keep things moving, Hillary would agree and push on. However, the next day, after a foot of snow had fallen, the sun would be even more intense, and it quickly became obvious that the porters were having problems with their vision. Upon realizing how serious the situation was, Hillary would berate himself, as he had allowed his impatience to move forward to cloud his better judgment. Luckily, Tom Stobart, the expedition's cameraman, would save the day. He had some panoramic ski goggles and would cut the lenses into small pieces. Using tape normally employed to seal film rolls tightly shut, plus a little string, he would assemble a bunch of makeshift goggles for the porters. And thus, a disaster was averted. It is a reminder of just how brutal the glare of the sun can be on the slopes of Everest. In 1924, the expedition's leader, Edward Norton, had been blinded for days after taking off his goggles for just a short time on his record-setting climb. He was lucky that he had a companion to lead him down the mountain, or he surely would have perished. And with that, Hillary and his team would reach the icefall and begin probing their way through. Hillary would note that the icefall looked even more difficult 
than when he had first encountered it two years earlier. He even wrote to a friend that if he had encountered the icefall back home in New Zealand, he wouldn't have dared to try going through it. But on Everest, he noted, you had to take what you were given. We have talked about how dangerous the Kumbu icefall can be. The walls on both sides are high, and snow and ice can tumble down at any time. Hillary noted how once he found a 20-foot section of his footsteps essentially wiped away when a massive block of ice fell from above and obliterated the area of any trace of human passage. It made him acutely aware of the dangers before him. The icefall had many other challenges to Hillary and his team. There were massive blocks of ice, some as big as buildings, blocking their path. You either had to go around them or over them. And other problems were the seracs, which are huge ice towers, some 100 feet or 30 meters high. They were often unstable and could collapse at any time, meaning they were best avoided. Another obstacle were the many crevasses, which are cracks in the ice. They could be so narrow a person could step over them, or they could be 100 feet or 30 meters wide, and equally as deep. As the ice was moving, the crevasses could open and close at any time. The team was lucky if a crevasse had an ice bridge leading from one side to the other. However, these ice bridges were often unstable. One time, George Lowe, while with Ed Hillary, came to an ice bridge leading over a deep crevasse. Hillary said that he had used the ice bridge the day before. Lowe, just to be safe, poked at the ice bridge with his axe, and the whole thing collapsed right before him. That is another example of how everything could change very quickly on the mountain. For Hillary and his team, it would be a matter of avoiding the dangerous sections, especially the walls, and setting up a safe route for the porters to follow. And this latter point was important. Setting up a route meant a path that everyone could use, not just the climbers. So the push through the Kumbu Icefall would be slow and steady. Some areas were so difficult, they acquired names, including Hillary's Horror, the Atomic Bomb Area, and Hellfire Alley. With those names, you can just imagine the challenges. On April 15th, about halfway through the mess, Hillary Lowe and George Band found a relatively safe location, not far from the atom bomb area, to set up Camp 2, which was at an elevation of 19,400 feet, or 5,900 meters. Once the camp was established, they would press on through the icefall. Again, they tried to stay in the center and avoid the bulging ice hanging over the ledges on the sides, which crashed down and devastated anything below. But even in the middle of the icefall, there were always challenges. Blocks and walls of ice would have to be climbed or a route found around them. Crevasses would have to be crossed. Oftentimes, this meant cutting steps into the side of the crevasse wall going down on one side and then another set going up on the other side. It was a slow and painstaking process, but necessary. Another trick the expedition employed was to place ladders across some of the crevasses, especially the deep ones. Once a ladder was anchored on both sides and a rope handle established, the climbers and porters could safely cross. And speaking of ropes, throughout the icefall, Hillary and the other climbers would set up ropes to guide the other team members and rope ladders to scale blocked routes. The team would finally push through the Kumbu Icefall on April 22nd and emerge at the edge of the western coombe. Here at 20,200 feet, or 6,150 meters, Camp 3 was established. The western coombe is a broad, flat, glacial valley basin about 4 kilometers, 2.5 miles, long, it is surrounded on three sides by different mountains, Everest, Lhotse, and Nupsi. On the opposite side of the crevasse-filled basin was the Lhotse face of Mount Everest. This was the next destination, and it would not be an easy trek. Otherwise, with the route through the icefall and Camp 3 established, it was now time to start moving tons of supplies from base camp to the western coombe. Now, at this point of our story, I want to mention Tenzing Norgate, who has been missing from the push up the mountain, 
So what was up with that? Well, the simple answer is that Colonel Hunt felt that Tenzing was best used organizing the Sherpas and the porters and preparing to transport all the gear and provisions through the Kumbu Icefall. This was something that irked Tenzing, who when he was with the Swiss was often the lead climber. For Tenzing, he worried that he was being shunted off to the side and not being taken seriously as a climber. But in reality, Tenzing's fears were unfounded. The truth is that Hunt very much wanted a Sherpa on the summit of Everest, and he saw Tenzing as that man. But for now, Hunt needed the wheels of his very large machine to operate as smoothly as possible, and that meant Tenzing focusing on his duties as Sir Dar. As for Ed Hillary, he had put himself out front and center, trying to demonstrate that he was the man that Hunt should pick to climb Everest first. And for the most part, he was making a good case for himself. Hillary hoped that he and George Lowe would be teamed up, but he soon realized that that wasn't going to happen. The British element of the expedition was not keen to have two New Zealanders steal all the glory. And thus, Hillary and Tenzing began to see themselves as a potential team. And they would be right. On April 26th, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay roped together for the first time, their goal to find a route to Swiss Camp No. 4 on the other side of the Western Coombe. But that is for next time, when we not only cross the Western Coombe, but find a way up to the South Call and then to the top of Mount Everest. So that is a wrap for today. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you are doing well, and I wish you good health wherever you may be. Take care. I will see you next time for Part 4 in Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay and the Conquest of Everest.